Hey, Meg and Dr. G here with SPKN, the Sport Professional Knowledge Network, and it is time again for our special guest Saturday. Today, we are here with a very unique individual who helps professional athletes identify and amplify their advocacy around social causes. From Kaepernick to Rapino, players have used their platform to call attention to injustice in sport and in society. While most athletes would like to use their superpower for good, not all have a clear calling or voice. Our guest, Joanne Pasternak, is helping those athletes find their purpose and hone their voice. She's the president and chief impact officer of Oliver Rose, and she and we are honored to have her. She's the president and chief impact officer of Oliver Rose, and we are honored to have her on the show today to discuss how she is inspiring change, not only in and around sport, but inside athletes themselves. Joanne, welcome to SPKN. Thank you. Happy to be here, Meg. Appreciate the invitation. So, Joanne, you've had a very impressive career, not a typical job that most people can wrap their heads around. Do you want to give us a feel for what you do and what a typical day might look like? Sure. There is no typical day. I think everybody says that. But when I was five years old, I was in a really bad car accident and lost most of the use of my right arm. And at that time, I decided I wanted to be a pediatrician. I wanted to help put kids back together. I had always been fascinated by sports and looked for a sport that I could do even with some of the challenges that I had getting through different types of physical education programs, PE, whatever it might be. I never imagined it would take me here. So I jumped into the sport of figure skating and was a competitive figure skater for most of my youth and teenage years, taught while I was at the University of Pennsylvania. And while I was there, I realized I did not want to be a pediatrician. Instead, I wanted to help kids by helping them to amplify their voices. So that took me to law school and then a job at Special Olympics at their global headquarters in DC. Spent quite a bit of time in a variety of different roles, but then ended up at the 49ers running philanthropy for them for a decade, then the Golden State Warriors for a couple of back-to-back championship seasons, and essentially found out that my purpose was to harness this energy, this passion, thing that gets people out of bed in the morning, and find a way for athletes to be able to invest in themselves and invest in those causes by amplifying their voices. Let's talk a little bit about Athletes Voices. So this is a project that you're working on with Mm -hmm. Harvard. Tell us a little bit how it works. Are they all professional athletes? So Athletes Voices is in collaboration with the Weatherhead Institute for Global History at Harvard University. And it originated after a conversation following an amazing conference in Rome, Italy, where there were 200 sports executives gathered. And we were talking about all the ways that sport can influence the world and help to build out humanity, purpose, and really influence those who were under-resourced in order to enable them to gather the momentum, the confidence to be able to achieve different things in their lives. And following that, we had this idea that if we were to provide athletes with a playbook that would support them as they decided to use their voices to amplify a cause or to inspire change, that they might have an easier path towards being successful in how they chose to advocate. This was right in the middle of the season. I was at the San Francisco 49ers. And when folks first noticed Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, and Eli Harold taking a knee on the sidelines. And this was probably about six weeks after that had first made the international news circuit. And everyone was asking me, what's it like? What's, you know, how does Colin feel? And I just 
took a deep breath and said, I think if we were to have provided some awareness around what this would look like, the reactions and the interaction would be so much more effective. Because when you are thrust into the spotlight, social media has this way of pulling it out through so many different channels that you lose control of your story, your storyline, and what you had set out to do in the first place. So that's what Athletes Voices is all about. It's about working with elite Olympic level or professional athletes who are seeking to make a difference in the world, know that there's a cause that they're passionate about or would like help discovering a cause that they could be passionate about, partnering them up with the right media resources, the right corporate entities, as well as the right nonprofits so that they can find a perfect match and go out and make a difference in the world. This doesn't mean that we're sending them straight to social media to start tweeting or IGing about it, but we are hoping that they will find a route to further amplify their message so that they can be more supportive to the nonprofits. I think everyone kind of expects athletes to have some sort of nonprofit side to them and that they have an interest in something. I remember when I was playing, you kind of had to have something that you were backing if you had any kind of following. And are those things ever assigned to particular athletes or it must be hard to discuss something if you're just kind of an assigned something you're supposed to care about? It's funny. I, I had this thought years ago. This is probably 12 years ago. We, we were running the community relations department at the San Francisco 49ers where we had these events that were being requested by our sponsorship department. They were usually part of a larger sponsorship deal. So for example, you have Symmetra and they're the official bank of the Niners and they want to do a Heroes in the Classroom event and bring a player out every week to present a check to a teacher. And sometimes the, the programs worked really well, but most of the times it was us trying to find somebody we could bring into that event. And it wasn't as much about the research behind it. Who would be the best fit? Why would they be the best fit? Would they even care about this particular cause? And so I thought of it kind of like Mad Libs, if you've ever played Mad Libs. It's a game. My mom's a librarian, my sister's a librarian. So we had a lot of word games growing up. But Mad Libs, it's fill in the blank, plural noun, proper noun, adjective, adverb, but you have no context. So you're just putting random words. And while that comes off as very funny when you're five or 10 years old, as a grown up, we should know better. And we should know that we need to find the right person for the right cause and that contextually, we should stop and think about who the best athlete would be in a particular situation. So just that little tweak moved us towards a process where we would interview the players when they came in for a rookie symposium or training camp. And we would ask them, what is it you're passionate about? How would you like to invest in the community? Are there sp specific causes that have impacted you or your family members where you would really like to take a deeper dive? And based off of that, we were able to rejigger our ass so that we were asking the right guys at the right time for the right events. And what we found was that our participation rate went from 64% to 100%. And we stayed at 100% for five years running because we could go to a guy and say, which of these events would you like to participate in? Is there a particular event you'd like to do that you don't feel is on the calendar? And then by leaving ourselves space and bandwidth to be able to take on a project that an athlete brought to us proactively, we were then able to meet those needs at an even deeper level. And so just based off of that hypothesis, just like anybody, you wanna be asked whether you're doing something, you don't wanna just be a number on a paper. Also, if we go back 12 years, 
it wasn't a foregone conclusion that athletes would have something they would speak up or speak out about. It was really a, a newer concept, even though we know that in the history of sport, athletes have always found ways to take a stand for things that they believed in. There was a mindset at the time that perhaps that wasn't appropriate or that that wasn't what they were there to do. The world has changed dramatically. And that's why we launched Athletes Voices this year was because we saw that there were more and more athletes stepping up, leagues stepping up. Look at the WNBA and the impact that they made. Women's US soccer, women's hockey. That's just on the women's side. But as we watched players emerging with their own messages, slogans, and statements to make, the ability to provide them with a place to then take that message and bring it to action was to me the next natural step. So I'm a big fan of you can put a slogan out there, but if you don't help people what to do with the slogan, how are they gonna know where to go with it? So that's essentially what we're providing for them. How many of the athletes that came in as rookies didn't know, like what percentage kind of looked at you blankly, like what? That, that happens. You know, these are guys like particularly back then as talking to the rookies, they're 21, 22, 23 years old. They have spent their entire growing up experience playing football, being coached for some of the guys they knew where they came from and they really wanted to give back to the community that where they had emerged or to an organization that helped them along the way. But for some guys, they would look at us blankly and they'd say, well, what do you have? But that's where the events that we had on the calendar came into play. So for yeah. example, we always had a celebration around breast cancer survivors and warriors October. And for some, that would be a great cause at Gleanin. Any of the guys were pretty much on board for a toy giveaway or a hospital visit towards the you know Christmas season. And that was always a big winner. But what we found was that doing the download after the events was critically important as well. So what did you enjoy about the event? What could have been better? Really putting yourself out there to take their feedback and then put it to work. And when the guys could see that we were listening and learning and pivoting based off of their feedback, the feeling was with, you're no longer just a proper noun being inserted into your Mad Libs game. Now you are an individual with a specific life history and specific causes that you're passionate about. And we were there to support you. We also found other ways to do that too. So for example, when we were at Candlestick Park. We had quite a few seats available in the 400 level, and we were able to donate sections of seats to player affiliated charitable organizations and put a banner up and just continue to elevate their their ability to relate to the causes that were being associated with them. That's great. I, it probably, with those events you already had, it probably gave them an opportunity to participate and kind of do some reflection on their part too, to see, you know, if something really was something they could take to yeah, heart. And it's, and it's a great call out. One of the, my favorite examples of that was a guy named Joe Staley, who played for the 49ers for his entire career, um, came in as a rookie in 2007 and just retired this past year, but Joe has an infectiously positive personality. He loves to karaoke. He knows all the words to every Disney tune. He's also a big offensive lineman. His wife happens to be an incredible retired professional soccer player. And between the two of them, they're just one of the most dynamic couples. Joe had led he's such an easygoing guy. When he first looked at the causes that might be affiliated, there weren't necessarily ones that fully integrated into his personality and what he loved the most and where his growing up experience. But his mother, like mine, was a librarian and Joe had been raised around books and literature and literacy and board games. And he ended up stepping up to create a program we called Kindergarten Kickoff, 
which was where kids got to get books, write their own book, think about respect. And when you bring the whole offensive line out to a kindergarten and you have them sit in those itty bitty chairs, that alone is worth it. But what ended up happening was that Joe found a cause that really resonated with him where he could speak in a unique voice. And he started to do any event that related to literacy, early childhood literacy, spreading the message about the importance of reading, writing. Joe said yes. And he ended up receiving an award from the National Scholastic Foundation because of the consistency of his messaging around that topic. That's an example of where we didn't necessarily have programs where we were saying, we're going to build out this whole curriculum around literacy. But when we had a guy who was so enthusiastic about it and could speak so beautifully about it and connect with the kindergartners, it evolved into something really, really special. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, so how do you go about then identifying a platform? Realize there you had things already set up, but now do you go out and seek a platform for athletes? Just like any interview you would do where you're diving a little deeper into it and you're saying to them, what is it that you love? What is it that you're passionate about? What are you good at? What do you feel connected to? I'm a big fan of the Japanese philosophy of Ikigai, which is basically a Venn diagram where the circles are overlapping. And at the core, at the center, is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. And having come from a background where I did a lot of philanthropic fundraising as well, the events with the auctions and all of that, and seeing it in action at Special Olympics very early in my career, and then through a lot of my extracurricular activities throughout my life, I I know that when you can connect somebody to a sense of purpose around a cause, that you have an opportunity to get them engaged. And so that's essentially what we would do is as you're getting to know somebody's life story, as you're spending time with them, like you would with any human, (laughs) you have a chance to understand and see where their eyes light up a little bit more. That's how many of the athletes found their platforms and their passion around a cause. I have a, over my left shoulder here, I have Vernon Davis, Vernon Davis, number 85, just retired from the NFL. And he majored in studio art when he was at the University of Maryland. And for him, art was always a way for him to kind of wash away the day's stressors. Even when he was a young man growing up in in DC, he found art was a great escape. But he also found that people would tease him sometimes for art, didn't quite understand why he cared about it. And he was even called names as a result. So Vernon spent some time figuring out which platform he wanted to focus on, but eventually landed on the Vernon Davis Foundation for the Arts and his work around lifting up artists from communities like the one he grew up in, providing them with scholarships to art school and being very open about how art had helped him through a lot of just the difficult emotional moments in his life. It's made a huge difference in the world, honestly, the world that he's come from, but the visibility around it and having Vernon stand up and say, this is something that's important to me is tremendous and much more influential than you would think. Because although we as parents or guardians or loved ones to little children might think that we are the ultimate influencers, sadly, we need our voices to be amplified by their heroes on the screen or on the field or on the pitch as well in order for them to continue to listen. I'm interested, Jenna, you have not had the typical career path, but it's kind of like being a professor. Nobody wakes up any day and says, hmm, I'm going to get into sport philanthropy and fundraising. And then you went to law school. So I'm just wondering for people that are listening about career transitions and seeking new opportunities and the skills you specifically developed for this fairly niche field, 
you know, how do you go, what would you suggest for somebody that's hearing this and like, wow, that's really cool. I might want to do that someday. Like, what do I need to do? How do I do that? It comes down to the same skill that's important for so many jobs, which is communication ability, the ability to speak, listen, learn, look, take it all in, digest it, and then figure out how to push it out into the world. But for me, I loved reading. I loved writing when I was growing up. I did a lot of journaling, but I also did a lot of hand raising and my my dad called it helium hand. I love the idea of helium hand. Helium hand, I mean, you think about a balloon filled up and it just kind of goes up. He would say, don't allow yourself to be weighed down. If there's an opportunity, raise your hand and take it on. Like just say yes. And even if you're unsure or if you feel like you might be underprepared, having that mindset embedded within my head from such a young age allowed me to take those chances. The sport that I did growing up and sports are such a critical component of this success that I've found within my career. My sport, I literally had to throw myself up into the air, do a couple of revolutions and hope that I had everything just right so that I could make a smooth landing onto a small metal blade on ice. If I didn't, I was headed down and there is nothing more demoralizing, I think, than standing up and having to wipe the ice off your rear end and keep going. That's really humbling. I, I approached it with, uh, I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to say yes. And then Mrs. Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was, she's one of my heroes in life, but she was an incredible leader of Special Olympics, the founder of Special Olympics. And I had the great fortune to be at Special Olympics when she was still there. She had this statement she made when I was, I think I was 26 years old and had no business offering an idea up. But per my dad's recommendation, when ideas were requested and I had one, I raised my hand. She asked me to share. And then she looked at me very intensely. And she had this way where she like, point your finger at you. She said, let's see if we can't find a way to make that happen. And if you break that statement down, it's so empowering. She was saying to me, like, she's not committing to doing it. She's saying, let's see if there's, like, I'm going to look into it. If there's a way, there has to be some sort of path that we can make it happen. I felt so lifted up by that, that that's something I've tried to carry forward. No, my career hasn't been traditional, but I've jumped at opportunities that have come my way. And I, I try to find a way to say yes. A great friend of mine and a, an athlete I worked with at the Niners and who's become a dear, dear friend, Eric Reed, said this to me a couple years ago, and it was so influential over my mindset at the time. I was feeling somewhat stuck, didn't know quite what was next. And I was with Eric, we were having brunch in New York at some like, you know, vegan, vegetarian kind of place. And, and I was giving a lot of excuses, which was unlike me, but it was a tough moment in life with my father being ill and some other things going on. And Eric just looked me straight in the eyes and he said, Joe, just find a way to say yes. I was like, well, uh, he's like, you know what? You and your family are gonna come to South Africa with my family. We're doing some volunteer work around this incredible program called Ubuntu Football Academy and you should just come. And I was like, I bet, he goes, just looks at me. I'm like, okay, yeah, yes, sure. Yes, we'll make it happen somehow. You know, that's one of those where you call your significant other and you're like, oh, hey, so we're going to South Africa, apparently. I'm taking the kids, you know, it's gonna be awesome. We were on a plane five weeks later and that trip wow. was transformational, not just for me, but for my kids in the way that they were looking at the world. Brian, that is an incredibly long answer to your question, but essentially it's just figure out a way. And if you're looking for practice in something and you can't find the opportunity to practice it at your job, 
that's where I really encourage people to take on external leadership positions with nonprofits and with community-based organizations or their, their school. The best leadership training I think I ever had was when I was president of my sorority in college. And I went to this school where everybody was strong, intelligent, and opinionated. And I had 150 women and I had to convince them to wear the same goofy t-shirt for a rush event. And I was able to get everybody to say, we're on board with this. That skill is huge. And I was, you know, 20 years old, trying to lead this group of opinionated women. It doesn't have to be in the workplace. It can be really wherever you can find it. And remember, like, what did I ask you? Uh, Sorry. Every- <laughs> yes. You asked me about my career path. Yes. But it's not, it's not linear. I mean, it, there's a lot more to it. Well, and you, you, what I hear you say too, to be serious about it, is the attitude of support around you from your father, from Eric, from others that are saying, yes, raise your hand, speak up. You know, we support you. You're coming from the right place. Try things. You know, it's more of an attitude it than is. it is a technical skill. It is, but but I would say this. There were just as many people, if not more, telling me what I couldn't do. No, there are definitely more people telling me what I couldn't do. One of the, the phrases that I have heard throughout my life was that sounds really complicated or are you sure you want to take that on or do you have the bandwidth to take that on how can you do that aren't you a mother to young children how can you do that aren't you also doing these five other things and I mean there are times in my life when I felt the weight of that but most of the time I'm like no I'm gonna do this and I sometimes allow myself to have a moment of like okay this is overwhelming and then it's like just kick it off just get rid of that feeling and jump into it. I'll, I'll, I'll share another thing my dad always said to me, which was, I think about it all the time. He'd say to me, if I were feeling some sort of sense of trepidation about doing something, well, what's the harm? If you go after it and you don't get it, where are you? Exactly where you are. If you go after it and you do get it, where are you? Better off. Is there any negative? Is there any step backwards from this situation? And 95% of the time it's, no, I'm either going to be where I am or I'm going to be ahead of where I am. All right, so what's the harm in trying? Go do it. That's a great mindset to remember because if you remember, we often do this in our heads where we build up the sense of failure as if that is something that will push us backwards. But really failure is just keeping you in place for the most part, and then you have a chance to try it again. <laughs> it's providing an opportunity too. Failure provides an opportunity. And I have to, I have to back you up on this one. I think saying yes is a skill. I really do. I mean, I, I think there's lots of times we all want to take the easy way out and say, oh, yeah, I got a lot going on. You know, yeah. so I would I would chalk I mean, that we have, up. You know, we have time and money for what's important. Obviously, there are moments in your life where you have no time and no money, but and there are certain situations. But that's that's actually Dr. G, that's to your point of like having that great network of people around you who will remind you what you are capable of. I, I've worked really hard on building just a framework of people I can turn to and for whom I'm available as well. But it was a really good friend of mine who actually, she's the head of development for the Library of Congress in DC and used to run uh, development for the Smithsonian's. We met during a leadership program at Stanford. And a few years ago, she said to me, I was really overwhelmed with things. My, My father has advanced Alzheimer's, but it's younger onset. So he was only in his early 60s when he was diagnosed. And it was really at the peak of his career. And he'd always been the person I I looked up to and followed. And his advice was so essential in my growing up experience and my young adulthood. 
And I, at that, this particular moment, I was feeling really untethered. I was working for the warriors and I just, I didn't know what to do. And I was ready to just like, stop. I just wanted to stop. And this, this dear friend, she said to me, you know, the problem is, is that although you know how to build a strategic board of directors for a nonprofit or for a for-profit, you serve on boards of directors. What have you done around your own personal board of directors? How strategic have you been in thinking about the right person to go to at the right time for the right type of advice or feedback or cheerleading or whatever it is you need? And I realized that my dad had been filling so many seats on my board of directors and Alzheimer's was slowly removing him from those positions. But because it's Alzheimer's, you have no warning. So one day you have one version of him and then the next day that part's gone and maybe it comes back for a moment, but then maybe it's gone forever. You don't really know. So based off of what she had said to me, I kind of took a step back and I thought about those I had around me and what I was using them for. And while I love my mother, she wasn't necessarily the best person to go to for advice on certain elements. Maybe that was my a coach or maybe that was a friend from college or law school. It, sometimes it's just, I don't know. I mean, I'm a big fan of like when I'm feeling down and I'm at the grocery store or something, I'll just kind of try to make other people happy and hope that they feel happy too. Like, hey, check out the right bananas. They look fantastic. And then somebody's like, oh, she talked to me. Even with a mask on, it's pretty amazing how you can talk with your eyes and smile with your eyes. And somehow that lifts me up, which is, is interesting because the way I used to deal with the stress of skating when I was competing was I would, really funny, but I would, um, so I, you know, like most professional or elite athletes, I had a lot of, my grandmother would call them bovomices, which in Yiddish is like hangups. I would lace my left skate first. I would do certain things in order, but I had this one thing that really propelled me onto the ice. Whoever was the girl who was skating after me, I'd kind of turn to her and I'd say, have a great skate. And then I'd go on the ice as they announced my name. And somehow that was enough of like a, like I'm brushing it off for a second that it reminded me to take a breath and then go out and skate and know that I could jump into my program. You've really developed a, an interesting mix of resiliency and kind of coping skills, probably starting from your childhood and the accidents, the figure skating, and then it's very social support and people that you've drawn upon and then your own initiative and motivation and, and kind of task-oriented focus, as well as the social support, uh, like I said, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, when you're told, it's so funny. When I was working for Special Olympics, this, we were doing this huge project with Sesame Workshop. And there was this young woman who was starring in these, the series. This one young woman, her name's Katie. Katie was starring in a series of videos we were putting together to engage young athletes in physical fitness. And these were young athletes with intellectual disabilities. And we were on the set at Sesame Street and I was making small talk with Katie's mom. And I just said to her, you know, how did you come across Special Olympics? And she turned to me and she's like, you know, when Katie was born, we did not know she had Down syndrome. We did not know it until she was born. And the very first words that we heard from the professionals around us were all the things Katie would never do and couldn't do and can't do. And Special Olympics was the first organization that came to us and told us all the things Katie could do and should do. And Katie, Katie is an amazing woman. I mean, this is 20 years ago. She's gone on to travel the world, represent Special Olympics in the global level. She's spoken at the UN. She's, I mean, she's incredible. And it was because her parents had their ears open enough to listen to somebody who was saying what she could do. And that, that's part of it. I mean, I, I had tons of people telling me what I couldn't do from the time I was very little. And certainly being one of the, well, 
being the only mother in the executive leadership team at some of the places I've been and one of the only women, I would look around the table sometimes and think, these guys have no idea. I mean, I still think I'm probably one of the only people to have pumped milk, <laughs> breast milk on a team plane, NFL team plane. And I just, I would just figure out how to get it done in spite of the fact that I was the only one. And that's really, really scary. So I don't know if it's coping mechanism or dogged determination or the, you know, my, my grandmother would point to, she called them the Nemirov genes. It's the feisty, redheaded, Eastern European Jewish stock, but bring it on, like, bring it on. We're just going to take it on. I, I was talking to Meg before, right? And, and I wondered how much your Jewish heritage, my mother's side of the family is, is Jewish. And so I was mm -hmm. raised Jewish too. My dad's Irish Catholic, but I was wondering too about Sadaka and how that might inform your philanthropy or how you approach the work. If you want, I don't know if you want to tell everybody what that yeah, means. Yeah, I was going to define Sadaka. You know, Sadaka is the act of, of giving back, of charitable giving, but more importantly, tikkun olam, which is making the world a better place. That's the philosophy that I've really embraced. And it's something that was inculcated in me from an early age. Um, you know, my father grew up in a fifth floor walk up in Brooklyn. My grandparents had very, I mean, they had nothing in terms of financial stability. My grandfather was a postman. My grandmother was a textile worker in the Lower East Side, but they they just sort of found a way to take advantage of the opportunities and to lean in and help others as well. It was such a community there in Flatbush or Brownsville, the two communities my dad lived in. And when you think about Tikkun Olam and the opportunity you have to make the world a better place, what it means to give sadaka or to give charity, one of the pieces that's often missing is the dignity part. And it's, it's you know, as part of my upbringing, I was told that if, if you have to tell everybody what you've done, then it, it probably doesn't have as much meaning. And that's true, except for the fact that when you have people who are leading the way, like the athletes I work with, and they are open to sharing their stories, not just what they're doing today, but where they came from and how that connects to what they're doing, then it's so authentic that others want to follow. So I often find myself saying to athletes, it's amazing, guys who have never heard one word of Yiddish or Hebrew are hearing me teach them about tikkun olam. And I'll say, I know that you're hesitant to get recognition. You don't feel that you should be getting all the kudos for this, but please know that by owning it, by celebrating it, you're opening up the door for all these kids who are looking up to you to be able to stand up and do something similar. So there's probably nothing more influential in my life than the concept of tikkun olam. That is, it's something I think about all the time. My daughter's preparing for her bat mitzvah right now, and she's doing a service project. And it's based off of the larger mindset around tikkun olam, but she's working on a project with girls who have been trafficked in Cambodia and how they're rebuilding their lives. And so we actually went to Cambodia with one of my dearest friends, an actress named Annalyn McCord, who's a humanitarian and has done many, many trips over there. But my daughter was working really hard on this project to gather supplies for the girls. And Annalyn said, this is last Christmas, you should come with us to Cambodia. She told my daughter this first, which was great because then I have my 12 year old coming to me or 11 year old saying, mom, we should go to Cambodia. And Eric's words were still resonating in my ears. And I was like, let's do it. Sure, why not? So Kira and I, a month later, on a plane to Cambodia with three gigantic suitcases filled with items that she was she had collected and and I mean underwritten by guys I've worked with, uh, the ownership from the Niners donated a substantial amount. I mean it was it was cool. But we got there, 
what Kira saw and my daughter saw was that the items were great, but the human connection was more important because the girls saw a girl their age from a completely different side of the world who when it would have a New Year's Eve party was dressed in a yellow dress, just like everybody else. We wore yellow to show that the sun was rising the next day and optimism. And they dragged Kira onto the dance floor to teach her how to dance a little bit with a little bit of Cambodian funk to it. And they were just, they were friends. And Kira came back and she actually just wrote an essay for school last week about the concept of tikkun olam. She said, I got, I'm trying to think your last sentence was something to the effect of, well, I felt like I was able to do something really good for the girls we met. I also know that they gave me so much because I learned to appreciate the differences that we had. And, you know, Kira, she'll go back to Cambodia. My son kicking a soccer ball around with boys when we were at this Masopumele township in Cape Town, South Africa, and he was nine years old. He just, he got it too, because he said, ah, you know, you just bring the soccer ball, throw it down. And that sense of camaraderie brought us together. So it redefined Sadaka or charity in my mind as let's do this together versus let's do this for somebody. And that mindset's probably different than what my grandmother would have defined it as, but it's pretty incredible. I'll share one more with that. Patrick Willis. Patrick Willis is retired NFL linebacker, played with for his entire career with the Niners an incredible, incredible human, a great, great person. He's actually launching his charitable efforts within the next couple of weeks here. He is looking to provide foster youth. He was a foster youth himself with a sense of stability and connection so that they can build their their roots, really deepen their roots and find a place that they can call their own. But Patrick, this is probably 10 years ago, we were doing a Thanksgiving event and it was one of these, you know, typical events where you bring in all the food and there's, you're at a shelter and people are lined up and they walk through the line and we have all of our players there, they're wearing jerseys and they're holding their, their plates. And, you know, so one guy's at the mashed potato station, other guy's at the turkey station, whatever. As we finished going through that, Patrick said to all the guys and all of us, all right, everybody grab a plate and go break bread with someone because it's not about serving. It's about joining. It's about being part of what they're experiencing today. And we sat down, all of us like sort of scattered around and it was like, that was the most important thing. It was the human connection. And along with that, that sense of dignity, because we weren't leaving behind scraps of food. We were celebrating a holiday together and eating the same food. And that was like, as I looked around the room that day, I, again, I never forgot it. I looked around, I thought everybody was laughing, finding things in common. And so from that day on, when I would do an event like that, I would always say at the end of it, okay, grab a plate, go find somebody to break bread with, and then come on the ride back to the facility. Let's come up with one or two things we had in common with somebody at the table we sat at. I love the reflection that everyone ends up doing when, when they're out doing good and enjoying themselves as well and really getting into it full-heartedly. Have you ever, those are some great stories. Have you ever had anything kind of backfire on you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, one of the best parts about event planning, I actually taught a course on this for a while. It was philanthropic event management and sports. And I, I would always use this line, which was the great thing with events is first of all, nobody knows what you have planned unless you tell them. So give them the basic structure. And then when things fall apart behind the scenes, no worries. Nobody knew that you were going to serve lemonade. They're totally fine with the fact there's only water. It's all good. 
Like you just move forward. When you work in the world of sports, nothing is certain. So one of the other things that I learned very early on was if I said, we're going to be coming to this event with player X, Y, and Z, and I showed up with A, B, and C, there was disappointment or questioning. And so instead I'd say, we're coming with a great group of guys. And if I showed up with two practice squad guys and a mascot, they were like, this is amazing. <laughs> they weren't expecting the pro bowler, but really happy. But it's, it's really setting expectations. The other thing is, is again, in the world of sports, like how many times did I have a head coach fired the night before one of our biggest events, or were we 0 and 8 going into an event where we had national coverage happening? And like this true story, Matthew McConaughey was partnering with us on an event and we were 0 and 8. And I was just like, could we please win this game, please, so that people will feel really uplifted. And we totally didn't. And I was feeling really down. And yeah, it's one of these weird moments where Matthew McConaughey was the one who was like, we got this, we're going to do it. Just keep living. Like that's his philosophy. JK living in his, his philanthropic organization. And it's something his dad used to say to him. So I just, I, in fact, I still have this t-shirt from that event that says, just keep living on it. And I think about it sometimes like, all right, we got this. Things go wrong. You know, guys get injured. Things don't go as planned. Check presentations on the field. People think that those are sort of like, they happen in a the moment. They're actually pre-recorded in terms of the audio. So you'd often have a situation where you're saying like, joined by Bay Area Youth or something like that. And you're like, I have no youth. Okay, just grabbing random kids. Like, we're going to do this. Thinking on the fly has gotten me through so many different things. You know, that's a lot. You know, Dr. G, back to what you were saying, like, these life skills. My my mom is a polio survivor and has severe asthma. As a result, she has uh, one lung that's not very functional. But, so she would have these horrible asthma attacks when I was very little. And my dad tended to like freeze in the moment. Like, I don't know why, but he just wasn't able to do it. I would grab her purse and I'd say pink or blue. And I could hold up the two inhalers and hand her the one she needed. I knew how to do the um, EpiPen shot for her early on. She has some severe food allergies as well. And so I also learned that while my mom was hyperventilating because she was getting scared because she couldn't catch her breath and my dad was standing there like frozen, like, what do I do? If I just stayed with equilibrium right there, again, pink or blue, here you go, mom. No big deal. We got this. I still do that. Like, it's probably unnerving to some people, but I think it keeps people calm. I was going to say it right here. I mean, here's this, you know, tiny little Jewish woman that is talking to pro athletes, pro football players, basketball players. Right, and you and you got a little bit of ice water running through your veins or that response, you can have that quick response and like, yeah, geez, how do I teach that? You know, how do you do that? How do you practice <laughs> that? That's a tough thing. You know, I'm one half Brooklyn, one half Philly, raised yeah. in DC, on the ice, moved to California halfway through, had to totally figure out who I was because Maryland life was totally different than California. I didn't know how to peg my jeans, I didn't know who Prince was as an artist. I mean, this was stuff that I really Maryland was a little behind. They came out here and it was scary and I was overwhelmed and I had to get used to a whole new lifestyle. But, but yeah, I mean, I do. I, I think it's funny. Meg and I were actually talking about the red hair thing coming in here. My, my son has the most vibrant red hair, like period. It's like gorgeous, gorgeous red hair. Both my grandmothers had red hair. My dad has red hair, my sister. And when I was very little, I was told that I had a, I had family members, of course, like all of us did, who lost their lives during World War II and in the Holocaust. 
But my, my aunt, who's a docent at the Holocaust Museum, my, my Aunt Joyce, she was doing some research and she came across footage from the Shoah Project, which is Steven Spielberg's project to get those firsthand accounts from survivors recorded and cataloged. She's doing some research, she came across this video of some long lost relative. And the relative said, when the war was over and she was going to find potential survivors from our family, she thought she would either find or know what had happened to one of her brothers because he had the reddest hair anybody had ever seen. And so she ran around asking if anybody had seen him. They called him Jinji. Jinji is redhead in, in Hebrew. But, but she, she was able to trace how he had gone through the war and knew that he had lost his life because of his distinctive hair color. And just like my son, the red eyebrows, the red, the long lashes. My son was probably six months old at the time. And my aunt called me with this and she's like, just make sure Reed knows that like his hair is a magical power that has gone through. Like it's almost like that gene that swam through the generations and made its way. And so that, that resiliency, it's you have the genetic material of your ancestors inside of you. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to honor them? And that's something that really resonates with a lot of the athletes I work with. Patrick said just recently, Patrick Willis said recently, why is it that I was told I was worth so little growing up in rural Tennessee when it turns out that I was descended from kings in Africa? And I thought to myself, like, God, like that's a message. So we're incorporating that into his philanthropic messaging for foster youth. Because remember, like, even if it's just this much of your genetic material that's left, that you inside, you have kings running through your blood. What are you going to do to honor them? How are you going to lift yourself back up? And if you go to my website, oliverrosellc.com, oliverrosellc.com, there's a, a link to Joanne's Overdue Book Club. They're books that I recommend often you'll see that Mad Libs is on there. The Alchemist is on there and Melinda Gates, you know, book lift. But the one that I think is really incredible that resonates with me and with many of the athletes I work with is called Homegoing. And it's the story of one family line going from Africa into the slave trade all the way to modern day Bronx and the overcome the overcoming they had to do in order to get to where they are, but how much they were also pushed or hurt or felt unworthy along the way. And think about Patrick Willis and, and remind ourselves that we all have a little bit of DNA inside of us that belonged to a king at one point. Or queen. Or queen. Yeah, I know. I use king, but <laughs> yes, a king or a queen at some point. That's true. But not a princess, because as my daughter said when she was about four, I don't know why anybody wants to be a princess. All they do is sit around and look pretty. I want to go do something. <laughs> I love that. That was when I knew I didn't have a daughter who was going to be sitting around playing with dolls. And you know, now she's training for her first junior nationals for pentathlon. So I, I yeah, I guess she wasn't going to just sit around and do nothing. <laughs> that explains why people call me princess, though. See, I know. I know. I was thinking that from the very beginning. Nobody calls me that, though. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> I'm really impressed too by uh, the way here you've you've dropped I think four different languages and at least three or four different kind of countries and nationalities and talked about the dignity of really across humanity and some of our shared experiences and I've got to believe in in the work that you do and working with so many diverse athletes and in different groups that that's got to resonate and allow you to bring people together. To, to share that goal and to accomplish, you know, your shared vision. Dr. G, that is my favorite, favorite thing. I'm so, like, it's, it's so interesting. In building up this program with Harvard University, there were some conversations that were turning towards 
How did we want to educate athletes or work with them on their messaging? And that, that hit me in this really strange way. And then I finally was able to identify it. And I was like, no, I want people to speak with their authentic voices. And be, just because some of us have been blessed with access to education does not mean that we are more innately intelligent. The guys I have worked with over the years and occasionally a woman or two I've worked with. I don't work with very many women, so that's why I tend to refer to as guys, but the guys I've worked with, some of them had no access to education, but I would hire them 50 times over somebody with fancy degrees because they're so freaking smart and they just know how to get it done. And I realized the less concerned they were about the words they were choosing or grammatical correctness, the more comfortable they became and the more authentic their voices were. So for athletes' voices, it's very directly stated. We want you to speak in your natural voice around causes that are important to you. And if that occasionally includes a curse word or it includes something that's slang or vernacular that might not be familiar, doesn't matter. It's up to us to learn it as opposed to like my very good friend, Mohammed Chaudhry, who's a leader in the um, Muslim American movement in the Bay Area and, and really internationally. He he was going by the, the moniker Mo or Mac. And I finally, one day I said to him, why, why do you use that? He's like, I feel like I have to dumb it down or that people are going to make judgments. If I say my name is Mohammed, they start to think that I'm going to present as something that I'm not. And I was like, yeah, well, I refuse to call you Mo or Mac unless you want me to. But if your preferred name is Mohammed, that's what you should be called. And he's like, yeah. And so it's the same thing. Like you see people doing that all the time. It's, it's, it's insulting to say like, just because it's hard for me to figure it out, I'm not going to things I absolutely love about what you do is the authenticity of it. You know, there's sport can be so spectacularized that it's, it's sometimes hard to see past that and to really have these people embrace who they are and what they care about and talk about it authentically is just such a gift. So thank you. Yeah. It's a, you know, I call it, you think about it, under the helmet, behind the mask. If you, if you go and Google Joe Staley and you look at what he's like on the field and he has this one famous moment where he broke his nose mid game, tapped some ice on it. They taped it up and then he went back out in the game. And there's still blood coming down his face. And he's like, oh, you know, he's tough. That's great. That's Joe. But the Joe I know more <laughs> is the one who the very next day was with the bandaged nose sitting there on a little itty bitty chair singing a Disney song with kids. And so one of the elements that I'm trying to bring visibility to, and I also serve as the executive director of the Golden Heart Fund, and we work with former 49ers to help them through difficult situations, whether it's physical, fiscal, psychological, addiction, recovery, marital challenges, whatever it might be. And what we're trying to do is to take that sense that to be a man and to be a strong man and to be a football player that you have to be so tough that you're never asking for help from anybody and so the greatest greatest guy around this the greatest spokesperson for this is the most decorated nfl legend of all time until tom brady retires but for now he is is charles haley charles won five super bowl rings and he's in the hall of fame but he struggled with mental health challenges, bipolar disorder. As it turns out, pretty much his whole life, he had suicidal tendencies and thoughts. And he says very publicly now, he, he wanted to raise his hand so many times, but he felt so uncomfortable doing it. It was like the standard, you know, my sport, it was ice it, wrap it, take, you know, 400 milligrams of Advil and get back on the ice. In football, it was shake it off, get back out there. But when Charles finally raised his hand and said he needed help and 
and Ronnie Lott, his teammate, responded and said, we're here for you, man. We're here for you. That's part of the origins of the Golden Heart Fund. But we're trying to destigmatize what it means to raise your hand and say, I need help. Because otherwise, you have to stay behind that facade. And none of us are authentic when we're trying to be something we aren't. We spend so much time fighting social norms and expectations and stereotypes that it puts us into these boxes. We don't raise our hand. You know, we feel like we can't do these things. And yet we feel and we see in others and in, in our worlds suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get a theme of suffering and trying to alleviate that pain personally and as well as with our peers and throughout the world. And so we're trying to overcome that. And so we can say things like Frank Gore and and Patrick and others just be more real and start living without that oppression or that 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 those forces you know just holding us down I love sport I love sport as a connector I'm only really proficient at like one sport but I can appreciate the excitement that comes from being surrounded and you think about a typical stadium you have 69 70,000 people and People are differentiated by maybe the jerseys they're wearing, but you're kind of doing that same high five thing with the person next to you. So now in this COVID world where we're feeling socially isolated, one of the things that I'm doing a lot of is looking for ways that we can create that sense of belonging and connection, even without being there in person. And I'm I'm actually pretty amazed at how resilient we've all been with being able to find new ways to connect and to feel like the person on the other side cares about you and you care about them. And it inspires me because I'm also seeing those connections across like my, my, my guys at Ubuntu football Academy in Cape town, we've connected them with a group of boys in Baltimore, Maryland, and they've formed a friendship that's all virtual up till now. And hopefully one day they'll get to meet, but even if they don't, they feel connected. The listening uh, I think that right, people are using technology to listen a little bit better right now. And then you're talking about developing that sense of belonging mm-hmm. and that connection to, you know, share humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a tough thing in today's age right now. The other book I have on my, my website that I make all, all my clients read is Stone Soup. Stone Soup is an old, I mean, it's a folktale. A lot of cultures lay claim to it. I call it a Jewish folktale because that's how I learned about it. But you know, it's this philosophy of, of the man in rags who comes into the town and asks if anybody has anything he can eat. Everybody says they don't. He stands in the middle of the town center with a big pot and asks somebody if they have a rock, puts the rock in or the stone and then water. And people taste the soup They're like, well, it could use a little more carrots, a little more spices, maybe some chicken stock. And little by little, everybody comes out and donates their, what they have to the soup. And it creates this huge bowl of soup that feeds the entire village. And the villagers look at him and they say, it's amazing what you were able to create from just a stone and water. And of course, you know, he kind of laughs himself because he knows that it's really everybody coming together and contributing something they had that made the pot bigger. Joanne, we'd love to keep talking to you. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. I just looked down. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I just ran over. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, what we do at the end of each of, of our talks is we ask if you have a specific story you'd like to share about a coach in your life that either good or bad, mm-hmm. that kind of made a difference. Who coached me personally or coach, because I've been around way too many coaches. So if it's, if it's someone who did something to someone else, it might be easier to tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
gosh, I've had so many coaches. I'll give you, I'll, wait a minute, I'll step in front of this one for a minute and give you a time, you know, a moment to think about it because I'll, I'll, I'll give the joke of, well, the, you know, with the 49ers now, you've seen a lot of coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was at the Niners, I had, I worked with seven different head coaches in nine seasons. So crazy, crazy. But I've, I've seen really every style of coaching. When I go back to my days in figure skating and I was starting to injure out when I was 16, I was working with a really, you know, high level, high expectations, competitive coach. And it was, it was weighing me down. And I just, I wasn't in a great place emotionally because I was losing something that had meant so much to me and trying to hang on to it. And I think so many athletes can relate to that. A small angel named Kay Fainer was my, came in and became my coach at that time. And she was able to help reignite the love of figure skating for me because she, she still loved it. And she got that I wanted to be a part of it, but that I didn't quite frankly, I physically wasn't able to compete as I had been because of injuries I'd sustained. Kay's the one who introduced me to Special Olympics, brought me into a coaching program with Special Olympics. She wrote my letter recommendation for college and she, she just believed in me, not because of the medals I would bring home, but because she could tell that I wanted so badly to be something. So Kay, I felt like she got me at a time when I needed somebody to get me. I think that's the most important thing a coach can bring to your life is like, if you try to coach everybody the same way, then you're going to be a failure. If you stop and look at the person you're coaching and think about what they need and what inspires them. That's something I just said to my daughter's pentathlon is made up of five sports. And one of them is the equestrian side. And I just said this with her equestrian training was one of the coaches was like, wasn't reading her and what motivated her. And I was with a client who's a WNBA player at this horseback riding lesson. <laughs> and I had felt it, but I don't know why I hadn't stood up and said anything, but this woman who played almost 20 years in WNBA leans over and she's like, that's not the right coach for your daughter. And I was like, you are right. And I right away was like, you know what? We got to get to a different place because she's making my daughter feel worse as opposed to lifting her up by creating opportunities for learning. There's a difference. It's not like throwing blue ribbons at somebody, but it's saying, hey, I like the way you did that. And here's what else you can do. So the best coach is the ones who figure out who you are, lean into it and kind of elevate you from where you are versus trying to make you be something you aren't. Kay Fainer. I haven't thought about her in a little while. I want to thank you, you know, not obviously for being on the show, but for the work that you're doing for your philanthropy, for how you bring people on board and, and together and are helping every day, trying to, you know, alleviate suffering and make the world a better place for individuals and communities. That's a, it's, it's a, it sounds like a heavy weight when you say it that way, but I don't know. I, I'm at the place now where I'm jumping out of bed, excited to do what I get to do, feeling really fortunate that I have been a people collector and I've held on to the people who have been amazing and have either for me or whatever. And I'm going to just keep collecting people and plugging them into amazing events and experiences. And I've also learned that when somebody is sucking the life out of me, that it there there are times when you have to let go of somebody or something, even if you're in a dream job. It might not be your dream job and that's okay because certainly I've been there and I've done that and it when it didn't feel right it was the scariest thing to me to say I, I'm ready to step away it's just you know continuing to pull that forward and to say that out loud so that people don't feel like they're stuck they can pull out of whatever it is get away from that relationship or that 
person who is pulling them down and just kind of stand up and say, you're telling me that's too hard, that's complicated, that's impossible. How could I, if I'm filling the blank with all these different characteristics, I'm just going to do it anyway. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.